Hello, I'm Superbose. Welcome to this week's Net Hero podcast. And I'm at the International Energy Week as we speak. So it's a bit of noise behind, which is great. Loads of people knocking around, doing some stuff. Because this is the week that the energy sector, particularly people from the oil and gas sector, come together. There have been protesters, uh, sort of climate activists outside. But inside, it's been a very calm atmosphere and actually some pretty good conversation. Starting off with Chris Skidmore, who is, if you know and you've been reading FutureNetZero.com, pretty much Mr. Net Zero, uh, the uh, minister, he was the energy minister when Net Zero put into law. And he actually said something uh, very uh, profound today, which I thought was, was great, which is, you know, you need to hear from the voices. He talked about people protesting, but you've got to be realistic about why oil and gas companies are here, because we need them. The key point around net zero is that we work with everyone to decarbonize. We can't sort of just refuse uh, the opportunity for everyone to have that conversation about how they're going to deliver. And everyone is going to be on a path to net zero, and I want to make sure they all achieve it. The protesters are outside. We heard them shouting. And obviously, this, this has become such a, a focal point for not just a mass movement, but a, a sort of kind of, I don't know, there's a, a grit around net zero that there shouldn't be the involvement of oil and gas company. There's a rejection that's out there, which is hard to get away from that public view. You said earlier, your job as a politician is to walk that tightrope for everyone. How do we do that when there is so much vehement feeling, perhaps misguided, but it's honest feeling for people that's against this? Well, I think it's clear uh, that when it comes to the future use of oil and gas, even in a net zero scenario, we will still be using 60% of the oil and gas uh, we use today. You know, the clothes I'm wearing, the clothes protesters are wearing are made from petrochemicals. And the challenge you know, for us in the long term is how do we move away uh, from oil and gas and make sure there's nowhere to hide. Don't get me wrong, but when it comes to the oil and gas sector, they've got to be able to do more than they're doing uh, at the moment. And the Mission Zero report that I published last month makes very clear that the use of gas needs to be better abated. We need to ban flaring. We need to move far further, faster than what we're doing at the moment. I'm not going to have any excuses, but at the same time, you're know, recognizing that we are on the transition. She, we reduced our emissions by 40% by coming off coal to gas and gas is a transition fuel. And we will now move to renewables and solar uh, wind and the opportunity to go even further. But at the same time, you know, I would equally speak to protesters. I reject this good versus evil narrative. We need everyone involved in net zero and to exclude individuals who are key actors in the transition would be a mistake. And what will these companies look like? Well, Bernard Looney, the CEO of BP, was also here this morning explaining that their vision is to transition. Of course they will, because that's where the future is. They can't continue to be just an oil and gas major when we know that actually, is that the future of energy? No. So they'll be making significant investments in renewable over the next five to 10 years. And I'm sure that a lot of the names who are here, the whole fact this event used to be called uh, IP Week, International Petroleum Week, and is now IE Week, International Energy Week, shows the way things are changing. 
on that front, uh, plenty of stories for you to uh, schmooze over. We'll be reporting all week from uh, IE Week, so uh, check out the stuff that we're doing there. But also plenty of news that's been going on in general terms on Future Net Zero. I'll be talking about our podcast subjects in a second because it's one that I, I really like. But uh, a couple of things that stuck my mind is that um, could reflecting sunlight back into space be uh, the answer? Well, this is one of those stories that uh, we saw something uh, not too long ago, a couple of days ago. But the, this is from the UN. The UN, the Environment Programme, is looking at technologies that bounce sunlight away uh, to stop global warming. Um, and this is called SRM, solar radiation modification. Sounds absolutely bonkers to me, very sci-fi, but I think it's quite cool. And if you saw a couple of weeks ago, we had a story about someone saying that could we put sort of dust in the air to reflect. So these things that were pretty much Hollywood scripts are now actually starting to become things that people are looking at more seriously. Um, in the wider format, there's been lots of stuff about transport this week, and BMW is now putting its way into hydrogen. Yes, hydrogen cars. It's launched something called the iX5, which has 313 miles of range. Now, having driven a hydrogen car, I think, actually, we are missing a trick because the infrastructure for hydrogen exists. It's just you, you turn it into a liquid, pumped under pressure. It's got to be uh, in a safe environment, which is exactly what we've got, called petrol stations. And I've driven a hydrogen car, fueling up, took about two and a half, three minutes, the same as it does to fuel up a normal car. And I do think that although electric is the future and this car will be driven by electric, using hydrogen as the source fuel might well be something that we have to look at. And finally, um, talking at all of this, uh, there's a lot of stuff talking about um, what the public want. And it seems the public wants the ban on 2030 for petrol cars lifted. And that's because, uh, this is from, dare I say, the Alliance of British Drivers. Um, this is because they don't believe that the government will hit its net zero targets. And the delay uh, means that they don't want their uh, options restricted. Also, it's fair to say that even if we went and hit uh, net zero production now, i.e. we've got EVs, uh, for every new person that's buying a car now, every car was an EV. The cars that we've still got today will take about 15 to 20 years to get off the road. So I'm not too sure whether I agree with that. I do think the target is important, but these are all things that we need to look at and study. So plenty of stories on futurenetzero.com and energylivenews.com. Don't forget to check it out. On to this week's podcast and this is one of those ones that I really really like because it's you know a little bit of the science stuff and I spoke to two scientists uh, from Aberdeen uh, University this week uh, looking at the whole issue of where we go with resources so they're looking at something called blue remediomics which sounds enormously uh, complicated but it's basically a project looking at what they call natural capital, uh, the C, particularly the blue bioeconomy. And could we find things like antibiotics or other drugs or ways of trying to harness energy or ways to clean up our energy production from the microbes 
and the algae in the sea. Well, if we do, how do we make sure that we're actually doing it morally the right way? So that what we gather from the sea, the same as what we've done with the land, we don't harm the sea. And this is a very interesting topic. So it's a topic about if we go and say we get natural capital, as they call it, and we get resources from these places that are just kind of the wild environment, how do we ensure that what we do is fair? How do we ensure that, you know, from the open sea, who owns it? Is it us? Is it the people who uh, explore? Is, the, is it the company that plays for it? Or is it one that we should have international rules, even when it's uh, not territorial waters, protecting it? So I caught up with Professor Abby Brown and Marcel Jaspers to discuss the future of this new untapped resource and how we make sure that as we use this resource, we also protect it. Hello, both of you. Hello there. Uh, now, we'll, we'll tell the listeners that you're both together, but you're not together, because Abby, you're quite a long way away from Aberdeen, aren't you, right now? I am indeed. I have the privilege of being in Melbourne on research leave where I'm continuing my work on the legal side of, of innovation um, and natural resources um, ah, but cool. also right now I'm logging into New York negotiations which I expect we'll touch on so it's all a bit crazy right now. I was going to say your, 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 your body clocks are slightly uh, slightly uh, messed up there but you're in uh, Aberdeen as we speak aren't you myself? I am in Aberdeen and uh, yeah like Abby says, the, the work we've been doing is, is on, on the one side on discovery and the sort of legal perspectives yes. from my side. The scientific side is really on the discovery side uh, of using uh, marine bioresources for the discovery of drugs and enzymes that make processes uh, in industry greener and cleaner. Let's just talk about um, the science uh, of what you're trying to do. Um, paint a picture for us, because I suppose most of us, it's like everything, isn't it? Our disconnect has happened over the over the centuries you see a chicken in uh, you know a supermarket it's covered in cellophane no one thinks about the bird or how it got there we pick up drugs that are in plastic vials and we have no idea where they came from what is the relationship for us and the natural resources because correct me if i'm wrong but i think most drugs that we take came from plants originally is that right so yeah, I mean, if you look at it uh, in, in that way, if you if if you do the the statistics uh, for for instance for uh, antibiotics and for anti-cancer agents, we can trace back the origin of about seventy percent of both of those uh, to natural origins. It could be plants, it could be microbes, it could be now also marine organisms like sponges, soft corals, sea squirts, and marine bacteria. That's really interesting. So, but how do scientists find these things actually have these properties then? Because I, you know, unless you're deep down in the water and suddenly feel a bit ill, you think, oh, actually, that sponge might be quite good for me. How does this all come about? So initially, I mean, uh, in sort of the golden age of antibiotics, once they've discovered uh, penicillin, like you mentioned correctly, from, from a fungus, they started looking systematically through soil bacteria and soil fungi. Right. Uh, and that was the late 40s, early 50s, and into the 1960s, when they discovered most of the antibiotics used today. And what we're doing now is we, we, we have two advantages now for that kind of thing. So the first one is that we have that background information. Yeah. Secondly, we understand the organisms' genomes and how they produce these compounds. That allows us to do two things. We can either look at the genome and find out whether an organism is going to make something cool and interesting. Yeah. And secondly, um, 
we can we can predict the chemical structures quite often as well. So that helps us a lot in terms of the search. It's much, much faster than it used to be. And we can find some really unusual chemistry. Is it the case that what we're doing right now is identifying, say, say you, you find a drug, and I don't know if we are finding new drugs, but as you said, in that golden age, but you, you find something that comes from a sponge or a, a plant. And then has it been that what we do is we look at what that is and then we just synthesize it, we replicate it in the lab. Is is that what we've been doing in the in the sort of medicinal world for the last 50, 60 yeah, yeah, years? For some cases, uh, yes. So most of the most of the original antibiotics just came straight from cultivating a very large amount of, of the fungus or the bacterium uh, that it came from. And sometimes doing a few chemical steps make it more bioavailable in the body, or less uh, less easily rejected, or make it less toxic. Those are those are common things that we do. On the other side of things, when it's a really complex molecule that only appears in vanishingly small amounts in the organism itself, then we often have to turn to synthesis in the lab uh, and, and to make the compounds that way. And that that is quite efficient typically nowadays, but it can be, uh, again, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, you use a, a huge amount of carbon resources to, yes, to make it that yes. way. So a lot of industries are now turning towards trying to find enzymes that do those processes more easily. And the best example I can cite very quickly is is the one from penicillin itself. So if you make a penicillin, you you, yep. you cultivate it in large vats, then you do a, a, normally you would do a chemical process to chop a little bit off it and put a new bit on to make it less likely to have resistance to it. That process used to take something like, you know, seven kilos of chemicals and lots of low temperatures and lots of waste solvents. But what we have now is to do that whole process, you just take your compound, uh, if you need to chop into pieces, you add a few grams of enzyme in water at room temperature, and it does the reaction without any waste products, essentially, and without using any energy uh, compared to the previous process. So it's already happening in industry. A lot of very big processes are being done much more efficiently with, with enzymes rather than using um, classical chemical processes. So in terms of this project, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're doing. It's, is it, I think this term is blue bioeconomy that you can, you can find or create this thing. And I think it's called the blue remediomics, if I've said that right. So could you explain what that is for, for the so audience? The, the blue remediomics product is, do, is doing all those things together. So we're, we have a, a in classical European language, we have work packages. And one of the first ones is to look at all the genomes of all the organisms that are online. Yeah. And then to try and figure out which ones produce or are likely to produce cool compounds and cool enzymes. And then later on, uh, the work packages are looking at um, uh, looking at producing those materials and then testing their, their functionality. So, for instance, uh, on my side of things, I'm looking for new th things called antimicrobial peptides which are compounds that are very specifically active against a few strains of microorganisms. So the benefit of that being that if you if you um, take a normal antibiotic, it kills everything in your gut flora. Yes, and it can have some detrimental effects. This is why people so, always say take a, uh, a probiotic yeah, afterwards. Yeah, don't they? Exactly. So in this case, the, the, the key is that if you have a diagnostic that tells you you've got a particular strain of, of, of a pathogen in your body, you would take a particular um, antimicrobial peptide that would, that would knock out only that strain and nothing else. So far more targeted. That's, yeah, that's, that's the idea. Saying. But you need the diagnostics to go with it. But then the project goes on to do a bunch of other things, which really involves Abby. So that the other things are looking at the sort of the innovation landscape around these kind of things. What is the what is the true value of the global market of using marine um, genomes essentially for new discoveries? What is the, the basically how do we deal with innovations that we make in terms of intellectual property, and and then how do we actually value that? As you mentioned in your introduction again. Um, in a global sense, you know, what is the true value of, of deep sea marine 
um, yes. microorganisms, genomes, whatever you want to to look at. And and that that's that's where this 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 whole thing comes in. Or maybe let that Abby explain a little bit about how the whole yeah, thing I mean, comes I, into the treaty negotiations. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose the thing, Abby, is there is always this thing, isn't it? It's like people talk about us going back to the moon. And whenever it comes to natural resources, it's great. The science part of us is very excited. We can do these things. And then there's the second part, which is, but if we do these, do we do a detriment to these things? And how do we protect them? So what are you doing around the sort of legal side of all of this? What, what sort of work are you looking into? Sure. So there, there's a, a few threads which run through that. One thing, of course, we're doing the project um, is doing trying to develop some case studies and trying to have some town hall meetings, maybe trying to time with some citizen science projects. We're trying to ensure the science could be done, but to do no significant harm. And what does yeah. that actually mean? How are people responding to that? So work in relation to blue carbon, for example, work with animal protein, um, work on algae bloom, which I rely on my scientist colleagues to tell me more about what that actually means. How do we, as, as a community, all the different aspects of the community, how do we actually respond to that? The science may be able to be done, but what's really the best way of, of embedding that in society? And then what, another thing yeah. that's... Sorry, no, no, I was going to ask you, it, this is the big debate, isn't it, that people say legislation is always years behind the science. And, and this is where we have a big issue where the politics and, and legislature and science never seem to be all together on the same page because science can do what it can do. But I, I, I think that's right. There's science, there's legislation, there's societal attitudes. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that Marcel are involved with some colleagues, particularly from the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, is tying in with what I'll call the Ocean Treaty. It's got a very long and ununderstandable name as well, but the Ocean <laughs> Treaty. The, the bit of the, of the ocean which is beyond national boundaries yeah. is comparatively unregulated and the treaty that we're honoured to be contributed to, to in New York just now, which we hope a week's day maybe will be ultimately finalised, is to try to work out basically how we can ensure that this research can continue on a sustainable basis, which is consistent with ocean conservation. So as Marcel has said, sometimes that can be actually going and removing too much of the ocean resources, but now with scientific development that can be done much more artificially in the lab, so it doesn't need to be done. But still, how can we regulate that? Perhaps should you be notifying someone before you go? Is that inconsistent with open research? A lot of those types of debates. Then trying to work out, well, if, if ultimately commercial products are able to be developed yeah. from that, and that's a long, 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 long path, if that can be done, if money is being made from that, and another increased information about what is in the ocean, um, what, what is in, in the all different aspects of the, of the microbiome, then how do we share that? How can we let scientists throughout the world, perhaps from countries who have a very strong affinity with the ocean, but perhaps have different levels of, of scientific development going on in their countries, how can we share that much more effectively? And if there is an economic profit, what is the fairest way of ensuring that is shared? And I'm very interested because of how the possibility of a clash, how that ties in with the, the private intellectual property rights. Lots and lots of arguments in favour of patents. Otherwise, why would people invest in innovation yes, and creativity? There's that reward argument. But equally as against, well, we've got that pri private reward as against should we be ensuring a much wider, more public benefit right now, as well as in the longer term in relation what, to the drugs. Where does this all sit? Because the deep ocean, so when you wait, get away from territorial, it's, it's, it's called international waters, isn't it? 
Can anyone yeah. claim it? So if I find a sponge, right, and I'm 300 miles off the coast of uh, Australia, for example, and I find that sponge, and then I extract something from it, you'd kind of think, well, if I've spent the money to do the research and find it and create a product that then has a market value, that should be mine. And I can see that side of the argument. But like you say, is that sponge really mine to use? Or is, does it belong to all of us? It's like the, the stuff about the moon, isn't it? You know, the moon is allegedly, hopefully, belongs to the whole planet. But I don't know. Absolutely. And, and that's exactly what has been negotiated. I mean, I'll hand back to Marcel in a minute because he's been involved for much longer than I have. But for many, many years, what are those questions and how can we... Because these are, of course, questions on which one, one could discuss all night. What's a really pragmatic way of trying to solve these problems? Something that will work for all countries at a practical level. I mean, lawyers yeah. can fight about this forever, but that's not helpful for anyone. So mm. really trying to finalise, um, should it be owned by anyone? Possibly, possibly not. What should be the processes be to have to go? How should one be rewarding that in, in, in a fair manner? And also capacity building technology transfer. So reward from the resources once it's come in and then how can we ensure that everyone is learning from those things most effectively and Marcel I know you've been really trying to lead with some colleagues for a long time to work out perhaps not so much ownership but the absolute process by which we can encourage um, scientific innovation and benefit going back to society. Yeah and I'll, I'll come to you in a second Marcel but I'll, I'll, whether both whoever wants to answer this the idea we have is that you're all wonderful people and I'm sure you are Right? Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. Uh, scientists are always great. They're doing things for the good of science. But, and I, having had a short scientific career, I know people are territorial. People are working on a bit of research they want to share it with others. They wait to be the first to publish in a journal like Nature, whatever. So, out there right now, Marcel, how much cooperation is there in the stuff that you guys are looking at? You know, possibly antibiotics from from uh, enzymes and bacteria that live in the sea. Uh, if you find something, would you share it straight away? Or is there kind of natural territoriality among scientists the same as businesses have? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of science can be very competitive. Um, we're trying to break that model uh, really um, globally as well because people lose out quite a lot. On the, on the second side of things is, is that marine scientists typically be very cooperative uh, because the ships are so expensive to send out. So what you have to do is you've got a ship with 50 places on it. You have to collaborate with other people to make sure that you get the maximum possible uh, sample collection, data collection, yeah. information collection from that vessel. So again, marine science is typically very collaborative because of the expense required. So it, it, it's similar to the, the big physics projects. You know, it costs $4 million to send a cruise out. You've got to make sure you get the most value out of that. So that, that's a positive side of things. And and people are talking a lot more at the moment, like um, Abby mentioned, open data, open science, um, something we like to call inclusive innovation, which is making sure that when you do a research project, that all the participants involved in it are involved in it from right from the very beginning. You don't just like add uh, some partners right at the very end when you say, oh, actually, we could do with somebody from country X. And you, uh, you, you, you don't, you don't do that anymore. You go right from the beginning and say, look, look what are the problems we're trying to solve together? How do we do it? Uh, and what are the best possible outcomes we can get if we all work together? So it's beginning to change, um, but it's still not there yet. So it's, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, the, side of, the side of it, I suppose, that really interests me is, and I've got what you've said, is that at the end of the day, if you look at what's happening, particularly in this net zero space, this sustainable space that we're, we're all talking about, you've got to have something 
the way that things are, budgets are tight, governments are struggling with other things. Funding universities is, is difficult, isn't it, right? Funding research. And there's always been this thing between the corporate world or business world and science. So, uh, you know, Jurassic Park, in comes Richard Hammond and he funds their dig for five years if they go and do this. Now, okay, that's quite hilarious, but 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 that goes on, doesn't it? There, you, you, sometimes there are universities that are beholden, even if they don't want to be, because the money for the research comes from a commercial source. So in this new world, particularly the world that you both are looking at, how do you balance that? Because without that funding, you can't do the work, but then isn't it right that the commercial company that funded you gets a return, but then also what about other scientists that you want to share the material with? It's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I have been on both sides. So I've done contract research. I've done um, research phase by, uh, on charitable funding, uh, government funding. And I've also founded my own companies uh, and, and, and started with those and, and yeah. looked at particular things like that. So I, I, I know all the, the sides of things. And, and you know, the competitive nature comes most of the four with companies where you have to then go down a critical path to try and develop a product uh, as quickly as possible without without actually investigating perhaps the scientifically exciting things sometimes. So that's a, that's a challenge. I'm working with a group of teams internationally um, on trying to develop a much more open way to do science uh, where you share the data from from the beginning. And it would take a uh, it would take a change in mindset and how we do that's things. That's what I was going to say. We might need a changing different model, wouldn't we? Really? Yeah. And it's, yeah, uh, it's, and, and, it's yeah, Abby, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, so if, I, if I can come in, just one, one of the things that I'm trying to contribute through this this particular project and other work is um, to, to contribute to that uh, change in mindset and to enable that to be delivered. So different forms of licensing of IP models. So we're looking, obviously, at the re return of the reward and investment, but also looking more directly to human rights, to sustainable development goals, for example, to really try try to draw together all the different threads. Marcel and I and other colleagues here, you know, we're doing a lot of interdisciplinary work. We're also, I think, trying to really open up some more forms of interdisciplinary thinking that human rights doesn't live somewhere else, sustainable development doesn't live somewhere else. All of these points about reward and sharing and conservation and openness can live side by side. I think the, the challenge, the privilege we have is really trying to work out how we can do that while still living within the, the present realities which we have. Yeah, no, I, and I get that. And I suppose this is the thing about this cutting edge for you know, net zero is, Lots of people are coming up with technology, not just in your field, but across the board, aren't they? And the real question that I find very interesting is how do we work out, well, obviously, probably trial and error, but market forces. At the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with people making money, right? We, we're, we're a site where we think that if businesses are doing good for the planet, well, why shouldn't they be re rewarded? But you guys are slightly different because you're sitting in the science part of it, which undermines all of the, the future innovation and then the question is you know it's like like a drug most people know that if a drug's made there's a license that's held a patent that's held for a few years then other people can make it that at present is the best sort of solution but for, for our new world of net zero should we be looking at perhaps you know i don't know <laughs> stupid idea central part of money from the world and says right everyone go off and do some good research with it yeah, no, I mean, that's very much a space that I, I live in much more, I suppose, rather than actually do, doing the science. Um, I mean, people have been fighting about patents for years and yeah. years and years. <laughs> yeah. um, 
there is a lot to be said for them as a form of encouraging innovation, um, but they're not necessarily the only way. Prizes, both at national level and international level, are often something which is brought up as an alternative. It tends to be difficult if you're trying to have a, a, an economic model, but not coming from the market, but coming from governments, because often there's not enough money from governments to, to replace what you would do. Tends often to be prizes tend to work more as a nudge of the market to suggest that, well, actually, we might want to do more, more activity in here. So, so, so that, that tends to work more. I think what we've seen... Um, a lot in relation to climate change, a lot obviously in relation to COVID as well, the recognition that perhaps the balance between patents um, or to be always cognizant of what is the best balance between patents and human rights and health and climate change. And you can still have the patents, but for example, it's possible just now under existing international and many national IP laws to have a forced sharing, a compulsory license if you need that to deal with a national health emergency. And there's arguments perhaps that maybe you should do that in relation to climate change as well. So you get you get your patent, you get some of your reward, but the others shouldn't perhaps need to wait 20 years before it's then freely available in the marketplace for everyone. And we're actually seeing some of those um, at the World Health Organization right now. Now they're negotiating a new pandemic treaty and the very, very draft treaty is reminding everyone that you, you can have more limits on patents than you, you might think um, and encouraging um, countries to think about using that in their countries. As, of course, the fact that there's the counter argument one always says, is that going to remove that incentive to innovation? Are people going to say, oh, I'm going to invest in something else or I'm going yeah. to keep everything secret like the Coca-Cola formula or the Iron Brew formula? seeing we're in Scotland, or is that actually well not really <laughs> going to happen so much? Got that one in. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating debate. I think I mean, I'm an intellectual property lawyer, born and bred. I think there's a tremendous amount to be said for patents and for other forms of protection, copyright databases, for example, which are also so very important. But I think it's also important to ensure that we can move to at least reflect on how we can get a much more balanced approach. To, 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 to patents, to human rights, to yeah. the real life problems we're facing with right now. We're trying to solve these through science and it would be unfortunate if we were, the balance was too much towards private, private reward while totally also recognising yeah. the huge value of that. Um, before I go, go from this, a couple of things I'd like to ask. Marcel, in terms of the work that's being done now, your, your work there, uh, are, I mean, obviously, I suppose it's very early days, but... I assume the aim is to create some medicines out of this eventually. And how long will that take? And what, what are you doing to make that process now at this beginning as sustainable as you can? So um, the, 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 the idea again is, is that we start off with gene sequences. Uh, we will probably use something called synthetic DNA to get those sequences made up and, and expressed into a, a host organism, a bacterium that we can grow quite easily in large scale. So the production process is thought about right from the very start. So rather than having a, an organism that produces a tiny amount of, of material, we can tweak these ones to produce bulk amounts uh, right away. So that's that's the nice thing about the process. It, it, it's, it's thought about right from there. So again, the process um, normally takes place again at, at room temperature um, in a bacterium, in water, uh, giving it some particular types of food, typically things like malt extract and yeast 
and things like that, yeast extract. And, and it's um, it's basically brewing, uh, essentially, but, but for making new drugs. So the, that's the idea uh, here, to make it sustainable. Um, again, the, the challenge is always getting the compounds pure. And again, there's tricks we can play to, to do that as well. So um, I think I think we're going about it the right way. This is, um, again, rather than having lots of antibiotics being given to people that are yeah. necessarily not effective because they're broad spectrum, narrow spectrum, again, brings with it the idea of, of not having a whole bunch of waste products going away and, and, and treating the wrong thing, basically. So hopefully, uh, a number of these factors together will help us um, have a lower carbon impact. I suppose the last question is, and it's tricky for you guys, but obviously, you've got to make sure you guys, whatever you're doing, is your carbon impact is low as universities. So I don't know whether you're using I don't know, electric vehicles to move around, whether you've got heat pumps to or, or, or renewable energies to pump and run your supercomputers and all that. But that's the other side of it, isn't it? That you may be working on more sustainable forms of science, but the actual uh, work you have to do in the environments you're in need to be a bit more sustainable. And I remember my old uni had masses of stuff chugging out chimneys in the back, probably still the same. So how's that process going at your university or, or, or in the wider sort of academic field? I can I can certainly speak for energy uses in we can add a little bit to that. I mean, in terms of, of, of the science that we do, it is it is um, high energy. I mean, the kind yeah. of instruments that we yeah. use use a lot of energy uh, to do. Again, we we looked into it recently into terms of what kind of things we would need to do to improve energy usage. And again, buying new instruments is one of those things. Secondly, is is making sure that you know all the air conditioning and everything else is running as efficiently as possible. In terms of of heating the whole university, I think we have a combined heat and power plant. But maybe Abby can tell you more about the sort of incentives you used to work as a in the in the, in the management. So you might know more than me. Ah. <laughs> I'm not not on my side of things directly, but yes, absolutely. So the university is uh, one of its key pillars of transport service in 2040 strategy is sustainability. Um, that's really been been driven, I think, in in the last year or so, in particular, looking at climate assembly, for example. Yeah. Um, and as well as that sort of policy leadership side, often real practicalities from the details of, you know, university travel policy to all our you know, procurement practices. Um, you know, the university, I think, is, is very, very active on that. Um, and I think it's starting to challenge us all, which is you know, uncomfortable, but necessary, I think. No, that's it. And I suppose the, the other thing is, you know, the future scientists or your students, they're much more eco-conscious than I think, you know, our generation ever was. So there's a driver from there as well, I suppose, isn't there? Absolutely. And some of that, I suppose, bring things almost everything coming full circle. Um, as Marcel mentioned, the opportunity for to do a lot more of the work synthetically in the lab, as well as the, the, the getting the plankton. Marcel, sorry, as I keep always calling it. Marcel makes drugs from plankton, but not more and more from digital sequence information as well. So it's not necessarily so much now actually going to the deep sea very yes. frequently to get yeah. that. It's being able to work much more on the digital side. Now, of course, all those databases, they in self have an energy cost. No, of course. Um, we have to be mindful of that, yeah. but we, that we, is something. We, we can't live in a world where we, we're not using where we are right now. Hopefully when we get to clean energy, then that's great. But I suppose that's the whole, the balance, isn't it, for scientists like you, which is to do the science as sustainable as you can to produce something that is sustainable in the future. Indeed. Yeah. Well, I think what you've done so far has uh, fascinated me and hopefully fascinated our audience. So uh, Abby Brown, uh, Marcel Justice, sorry, professors, 
both oh, of you. Sure. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast this week. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thanks, everyone. And you can check out uh, the professor's work at the University of Aberdeen. Just have a, have a look uh, for Marcel Jaspers and Abby Brown. Uh, really interesting topics, particularly the issue of who owns what and what rights people should have. Um, make sure you register. I've already said it many a time, and I'll keep saying it, June the 20th, the Big Zero Show. Uh, Juliet Davenport was here. I caught up with her, who is one of the speakers, the president of the Energy Institute. So she's one you won't want to miss. We've got plenty more coming and we'll be releasing some more names as soon as we can let you know they're in the public domain. Get your free ticket now. If you'd like to exhibit, get in touch and make sure you keep subscribing. My thanks to Rob for the production this week. Catch you next time. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.